one of the things I love about, you know, going back to the Barack Obama story of looking at different fields is, again, it gives you license to just, hey, if you enjoy watching Japanese films on the weekends or you enjoy watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians, regardless of what you enjoy, there's value in your guilty pleasure as long as you're applying this curiosity mindset and continuously asking yourself, why is this working and what can I learn from this and how do I apply this to my next project? Is your current success putting a lot of demands on you? If you're good at what you do, and you are, then everyone wants you. But that's no way to scale. If you're delivering spectacular results, you should be commanding higher fees, working with only the best clients. Welcome to the Hands Off CEO Podcast, where world-class agency owners and consultants learn how to fully monetize their expertise and scale profits by doing less. Here's your host, Mandy Ellison. Welcome to the Hands Off CEO podcast. I am here today with Ron Friedman. Thank you so much for being on the show. Ron, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Well, I am excited to introduce Ron. He is an award-winning social psychologist who specializes in human motivation. And Ron has served on the faculty of University of Rochester, Nazareth College, and Hobart and Williams Smith Colleges and has consulted for some of the world's most successful organizations. And his popular accounts of his research have appeared in the NPR, it's quite impressive, and major newspapers, including the New York Times, Financial Times, the Globe and Mail, Washington Post, The Guardian, as well as Men's Health, Entrepreneur and Success. Anyway, frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review, Psychology Today, Fast Company, Forbes, CNN, all sorts of that. I mean, Ron really has quite the background. And his first book, Best Place to Work, was selected as Inc. Magazine Best Business Book. And his new book, which is what we're going to be talking about today, is Decoding Greatness. And it investigates a game-changing approach to mastering new skills and succeeding faster, which is reverse engineering. So Ron, just such a pleasure to have you here. I've loved your book. I'm still working through it because it's like we were just talking about before we, we still push record. There's a lot there and it's, and it's really an interesting book. I don't have very many business books that I'm looking at that I'm like underlining and writing so many notes in it. So it really impressive work that you've done. Thank you. It's very kind of you. And I'm excited to share the big idea because I think it's so applicable, particularly to entrepreneurs who are not just having to learn faster, but also master new skills consistently. And this is an approach that'll help them do that faster. Yeah. So say more about that. Mastering more skills quickly. So we're in this world now where we have to learn things very, very fast now. So what are you seeing as some of the shortcuts to be able to you know, get up to speed and stay competitive? Yeah. So the big idea for this book is really all about how you can get to the top of your profession, no matter what that is. And throughout our lives, we've really been taught two major stories about how that happens, how people achieve at the top of their field, how they succeed, how they achieve greatness. And those two stories are, number one, greatness comes from talent. So this is the idea that we all have inner strengths and that the key to finding your greatness and to succeeding in your field is simply finding the right field that allows your inner strengths to shine. The second big story is that greatness comes from talent. This is the idea that if we just work hard enough and we have the right practice regimen, that eventually we'll succeed. But there's a third story about greatness, and it's one people don't often talk about, but it is the path by which a striking number of artists and entrepreneurs and inventors have gone through. And that process is 
by mastering a skill that few people have heard of, and that's reverse engineering. Now, entrepreneurs are a little bit more familiar with reverse engineering, I think, than most fields. And that's because they're a little bit less shy about the fact that this is the right way to learn faster. And just to be clear, what I mean by reverse engineering is simply finding an extraordinary example in your field, breaking it down, deconstructing it, and figuring out how it was made, and then utilizing the new skills and insights that you've acquired to create something completely new. And, you know, this is something you could do with a website. It's something you could do with an email. It's something you could do with a presentation, working backward, figuring out how is this constructed, and then thinking to yourself, what can I learn from this and how do I apply this to my next attempt? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting you pointed it out with entrepreneurs. Now, do you think it might be because some of us just don't learn the typical way that people do? Yes, I think part of it is that. In fact, one of the studies I talk about in this book is research out of the Harvard Business School looking at what differentiates successful entrepreneurs from well-skilled managers, people who are good at their job. What's really different about them? And what was found in this research, this is by Clayton Christensen, is that, in fact, successful entrepreneurs are not necessarily more intelligent. They're not necessarily harder workers. They're not necessarily even more creative What they do excel at is they're great at pattern recognition. And what I mean by that is seeing what's working in the market and then identifying A, where it's going to go next, and B, identifying a fit between a pattern you've noticed in the past and what's about to take place in the future. And so a great example of this, a pattern that entrepreneurs might pick up on, is that many successful businesses share the same underlying business model. So an example of this, I talk in the book about comparing Chipotle versus Starbucks. And they're ultimately founded in the same basic business model. And that business model is find an idea that's working somewhere else and then import it into your hometown. So in the case of Starbucks, Howard Schultz goes off to Italy. He sees the espresso bars that are everywhere. He goes back to Seattle and he thinks, wow, I wonder if this will work in America. And the rest is history. The case of Chipotle, Steve Ells was working in San Francisco where there were burrito bars everywhere. He then takes the idea and opens up a burrito bar in Colorado and Chipotle explodes. And so in both of those cases, there's the same business model, which is find something that's working elsewhere, bring it into your hometown. And if you think that way, if you think in models as opposed to a particular product or a particular service, all of a sudden business ideas are everywhere. So you just think to yourself, hey, I wonder what's working in such and such place that I might be able to import to my hometown or vice versa, what's working near me that I can export somewhere else and develop into a franchise. Mm, I love that. And that's one of the things that we talk about at Hands Off CEO with our Scale to Freedom Tribe a lot is like one of the main, most important things that you should be focusing on as the CEO is really mastering your target market. And what that looks like is observing the trends in your industry observing the trends in around your service. Where are other markets opening up that maybe weren't before? How has the buying pattern shifted even since COVID? And looking at those patterns, observing them so you can be several steps ahead. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's also a matter of looking at what other fields are doing that you might be able to learn from. And a great example of this I share in the 
Decoding Greatness is the story of Barack Obama and how he became the extraordinary speaker that he became. Now, not a lot of people know this, but when he first entered politics, he was a dreadful speaker and it cost him his first race for Congress. He got trounced by a margin of more than two to one when he first ran for Congress. And the problem, if you can believe it, was that he was a terrible speaker. He was a law school professor. And as a law school professor, he was used to lecturing students. Voters didn't appreciate being lectured to and they let him know at the polls. And so after he loses this race for Congress, he thinks about leaving politics. He's broke. He's not quite sure what his next step is going to be. And then someone on his campaign team suggests that he look to see what pastors are doing in the churches. And when he comes back a couple of years later, his speaking style is completely transformed. All of a sudden, he's telling stories. He's using repetition. He's modulating his tone. He's quoting the Bible. And what I love about that story with Barack Obama is that regardless of what your political views are, I think we can all agree that he is an unusually good speaker, and he's effective and persuasive. And what that story illustrates is that Barack Obama didn't go off into the wilderness and find his talent, and he didn't practice for 10,000 hours. Instead, he identified what was working in a different field, and he incorporated it into his approach. That mode of thinking, of looking at different fields and thinking, hey, what's working here that I might be able to incorporate into my approach, is a mindset you need to have if you're going to be an entrepreneur who succeeds as the market evolves. And it's an approach we can all use and learn from. I love what you said about the 10,000 hours. That's one of these rules that when I first heard it, I thought that's BS. There's some truth to it because really having 10,000 hours of mastery around something is really going to make you good at it, right? But it's not necessary to enter a field, do you think? I mean, I think that there's value to the idea First of all, okay, so I don't know how much time you're supposed to talk about 10,000 hours, but there's nothing actually particularly special about 10,000 hours. Andrews Erickson, whose research the 10,000 hours rules was popularized around, himself disagrees with the 10,000 hour rule because okay. what he argues is that it's not about the quantity of hours you spent practicing, but rather it's the quality of the practice that you do in order to improve. And so he argues for a particular type of practice, which involves not just practicing for the sake of practicing, but identifying what you're bad at and then focusing specifically on that and putting yourself into a position where you're constantly stretching and getting feedback on your performance so you can improve over time. His, he did a study where he found that people who use this type of practice they tended to be successful after 10,000 hours. And so that became popularized as the rule. That might be valuable. Set aside like the number of hours, that approach I yeah. think could be valuable in fields that are not changing, like learning to play the violin or playing tennis. But where it fails, I think dramatically with the idea of just practice, practice, practice is not going to lead to success isn't when markets are evolving constantly. So there's no one right way of doing things. There's multiple ways of doing things. And in fact, the more adaptable you are, the better you'll be. And so the key to success ultimately isn't to master one skill perfectly well, because by the time you're even halfway practicing it, that skill will likely have become obsolete. A better approach is to get really, really good at learning things quickly. And that's what reverse engineering allows you to do. Mm. So really good at learning things quickly. So. What are like really the components? How can you learn more quickly? Let's get into more granular around that. Yeah. So it ultimately depends on the field that you're in and the field you're trying to master. And 
in the book, I talk about all of these different examples of how people are reverse engineering depending on the field. And I'll give you just a taste of some of them. So in the case of chefs, what chefs will often do when they're trying to reverse engineer a dish is they will order it to go and they will then spread the intricate sauces on a white plate and light it appropriately, use a magnifying glass to identify what the ingredients are that went into constructing that dish. I can tell you as a nonfiction writer that authors often when they purchase a nonfiction book will go right to the end to look at the end notes to identify the ingredients that went into writing that book. In the case of photographers, photographers will often look at the length of shadows, not the object of the photo, but the length of the shadows in the photo, because that tells them the location of the light source and the time of day in which the photograph was taken. Another great example from the book is the story of Kurt Vonnegut and how he would take stories and turn them into pictures. Now, that sounds crazy. How do you take a story and turn it into a picture? What he would do is he would take a graph and he would do on the x-axis, meaning from left to right, the beginning to end of the story. And on the y-axis from the bottom to the top, he would indicate the fortunes of the protagonist, meaning how are things going for the main character? Are things going well? Are things going poorly? And it was almost like giving a story an x-ray because you'd walk away with a single image that would demonstrate what happened to the protagonist over the course of a story. And when he did this, what he found is that many of the stories that we absolutely love, the ones that have been told for generations, are basically the same story with different characters. So a great example of this is Cinderella versus Annie. At the beginning of the story, things for the main character are going poorly. Annie's an orphan. Cinderella's being abused by her stepmother and stepsisters. Then halfway through, Annie gets rescued, goes to live with Annie Warbucks. Cinderella goes to the ball. Then dire straits. Clock strikes midnight. Annie is kidnapped by people pretending to be her parents. And then at the end, they both live happily ever after. They're basically the same story with different characters. And it's only by stepping back and looking to see what's happening terms of the big picture for the story that you can understand what the pattern is. And once you understand the pattern, now, if you want to write your own story, you can build off that pattern to understand what are the audience expectations. Now, that doesn't mean you have to write the same exact story as Cinderella or Annie, but you at least understand what people are looking for. So you can modify just slightly enough where you can be original. Mm, I love that. That one of the things that I'm also hearing from the examples that you're giving too, is that there's a bigger vision here. There's something that's more expansive. It's like you started off this whole conversation with is how to get to the top of your profession, no matter what, like in the shortest amount of time. And uh, just doing that and going out with that intention is really big, right? So it's first starting with this bigger vision and setting that intention. Absolutely. I mean, and then systematically thinking about, okay, who are the exemplars in my field? And then how do I figure out what they're doing and what can I learn from them? So it's both having the mindset of curiosity, but then critically, it's having the tools for deconstructing those exceptional works. So I gave all those broad examples of like artists and writers, but this is just as relevant to marketers. So if you are someone who's interested in learning about how to develop a great website is start collecting some great examples of websites and then work backwards to figure out, hey, what are they doing in the first section? And what's going on in the second section? What's the third section? And now you can start to see patterns when you distill down all of the activity that's happening on the website to a single bullet. If you do that for multiple websites, then you can compare the websites that you 
consider extraordinary, the ones that are really well done, against those that you don't consider particularly memorable. And it's in that comparison of the ordinary against the extraordinary that you start to pick up on the key ingredients that make successful works resonate. Mm-hmm. I think you're spot on that it is as of course, applicable to marketing. And one of the things that we have applied this to with is with offers. There was something that I was very interested in some years back. I still am, of course, but I started hands-off CEO, what is now called hands-off CEO, as more of an operations expert. So I was really interested about which offers were compelling, which ones weren't. So I started this business, I would really evaluate, well, which kind of client's do I know we can generate results for? Because I couldn't help them with the sales skills at that time or the somewhat, some of it for the marketing offer. But so I would really be looking at and studying what were the components that made those offers good. And over the years, we've developed the systematic process to be able to deconstruct offers, to be able to see, but not even just deconstruct offers. It's like, I have deconstructed hundreds of different offers. So I know what make something really compelling. And here it actually comes down to three things. It's one client, one painful problem, and one really big freaking awesome outcome. When you do that, it's like you're selling like hotcakes. You can sell really big, high value, six-figure offer. Like that's the pattern. But what we have found that works really well and to be able to, it's kind of a, like an algebra problem solving for X, those three things. This is one of the reasons why I love this book because I'm like, oh my gosh, she's describing the process of like how we've been approaching this. But what we have started, especially with outcomes, what are the biggest outcomes you've ever created in your business? And then what would it take to be able to guarantee that outcome for every single client that you ever worked with? What variables would need to have in place? It's reverse engineering each one of those case studies to understand what factors were in place so that they could actually replicate that over and over again. And if they could replicate that over and over again, if, if you could replicate, let's say you've got a $5 million outcome for a client, if you could replicate that over and over again, how much could you charge? Mm. A heck of a lot more than probably what they are charging. That's one of the approaches that one of the ways that we have, is this kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, so I wanna first applaud you because it sounds like that is a very powerful formula. And what I think that, to put it in the terms of the book, what you've done here is first, you've collected the compelling offers and you compared them against those that you didn't consider compelling. So that's right off the bat, you've already done like two of the most critical steps, which is collect and then spot the difference. Spot the difference, meaning compare the ordinary against the extraordinary. But then you took it to the third level, which is you've templatized it. You've figured out these are the components. So now let me create a template for how I can fill in the blank. And that's what you're trying to do here is you want to create a Mad Libs for yourself of whatever it is you're trying to create, whether it's a webinar or a website or a presentation deck is the more of these templates that you build based off your collection and your analysis, the more powerful, the more quickly you can succeed. And so really what we're talking about here is the three steps are collect or curate, collect, analyze, templatize, collect, analyze, templatize. And so to the extent that you're doing this in different aspects of your business, you can begin to automate some of those learnings and create more quickly. Now compare that to somebody who didn't take those steps. For example, in the book, in Decoding Greatness, I actually show you how to reverse engineer a TED Talk. And I do this based on the most successful TED Talk of all time. It's one delivered by Ken Robinson, Sir Ken Robinson, on the topic of creativity. And 
In that analysis, I show you exactly what he's doing in every paragraph. I give you the emotional valence. So I show you here he's positive, here he's neutral, here he's negative. And then I show you how to turn that into a template. I'm like, here, if you want to copy this TED Talk, here's what you would do. Now, in fairness, I will say that if you copy Sir Ken Robinson's TED Talk, it probably won't work for you. And the reason for that is, number one, he's a funny guy. And he doesn't feel the need to share a lot of compelling facts. He's actually telling a lot of anecdotes. And you you identify that pattern by looking at the deconstruction of his TED Talk. That approach works for him because he's a high-powered professor, or he was. He passed away, unfortunately. He was a high-powered professor, and he was able to just joke around with folks because he was funny. That approach probably won't work for many folks. And so you've got to be careful about which patterns you're deconstructing if you're trying to We'll learn from them. You have to make sure it's a pattern that's going to work for you. But more importantly, the other reason why just copying his pattern won't work for you is because audience expectations shift with time. So at the time when he delivered his TED Talk, that was over 10 years ago, it was a very fresh approach. If you were to do that today, it probably wouldn't be as disruptive. And so the key here is to find not just a single example that you want to reverse engineer and templatize, but rather Take a few, take a sample, and then combine the different elements that you find powerful. And now you're not simply just copying somebody else's formula. You're taking a combination of different successful elements to create your own creative approach. One thing I just want to add and clarify is that I think that people have this assumption that if you do this in such a methodical way, then you're not creative. But the truth is that most people aren't doing this methodically, and they're just guessing. They're hoping that they'll fall on the right formula, they'll find it. And that's a much worse approach. There's a much better approach, which is be analytical about what it is that you find compelling, and then use that strategically. I love that. So what I'm hearing is, is that being analytical, breaking it down to what is actually going to work, and putting that in place, what that means is that now you know what's going to work, right? but you can add the creativity on top of that. And I like to look at it as like the 80-20%. So 80% of it is going to be more of the system. You like you plug in kind of a template, a formula. And then the 20%, now you are freed up to actually innovate, to create, to make it that much better. And we've seen this across the board with, you know, the offers, obviously I was just mentioning, but then when it comes to actually delivering it, like how do you be able to, to systematize and deliver services that aren't just a piece of crap that just is some commodity like you could get it from India. Like how you do that is you break down the system for a formula and then the last 20% is the creativity. Is that what you have found too? Well, here's what the research shows is that a lot of people assume that in order to be creative, they need to be completely original. Turns out that instinct is wrong. We often conflate creativity with originality. What people want is something that is similar to what they've experienced before, but is just slightly different. If you come completely out of left field, chances are the thing you're introducing is going to be rejected. And there's research on this out of, again, Harvard Business School, where they looked at the ideal degree of creativity. And this is research looking at the type of research grants that get funded by places like the NIH. And what they found in their analysis is that the very novel proposals got rejected. The ones that had no novelty at all were just replicating previous findings also were rejected. Which proposals got funding? It's the ones with a modest degree of originality, a modest degree of creativity. 
And the researchers call this optimal newness, optimal newness. So you want a minor degree of creativity. And so what you're looking for, and I quote Don Draper, (laughs) noted creativity expert in my book, you want derivative with a twist, meaning people want the same, but different. So they want something they've already experienced that they've had a good experience with that's slightly different. And if you're completely original, if you're aiming to be, to wow them, you're going to be rejected. And there are examples all over the place of products that have been rejected because they were ahead of their time, because people didn't have that intermediate step that acclimated them to that technology. And a great example of this is the Apple Watch. I have an Apple Watch. It's fantastic. I love it. And the Apple Watch, although it is very useful, is not particularly original. In fact, the first smartwatch was introduced by Seiko over 20 years ago. Then there was one by Microsoft. Both of them had many of the same features as the Apple Watch. It had real-time traffic information, real-time weather, real-time sports scores. They both bombed. And it's because people weren't ready for that. We needed the smartphone to come in between to acclimate us to the idea of having all of this information at the tip of our fingers. And now we were ready for the Apple Watch. And it's not just like recent technology. There's also examples of anesthesiology. When anesthesiology was first introduced, it was seen as really dangerous and immoral. (laughs) So people (laughs) considered the idea that you would pass out in front of a physician to be just like a travesty. Like there was no way you should be able to do that because you should have some self-respect for yourself. And of course, now we have a different perspective of that. And so there's also research showing that ice was rejected because it was perceived as unnatural. And, you know, today when we look at like automated cars and genetically modified foods, we're also suspicious of that. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't be suspicious, but historically, chances are those ideas are probably going to win out. So great examples there. What I'd love to hear from you is that, all right, let's imagine that you have a really innovative approach, an innovative idea in your business. How do you bring that about in the world in a way that is actually going to be accepted? Okay. So great question. I would point you to chapter five in Decoding Greatness. I talk about how businesses are really good at minimizing the risk in risk-taking. And we as individuals can learn from their approaches. And so one of the things businesses do is A-B test all the time, right? They small market test to determine whether something's working. So that's one approach is if you want to introduce something, don't just share it with your entire audience. Talk to a few clients or a sliver of your audience and see what the reaction is. And we as individuals can do that too. I talk about the examples of Tim Ferriss. And when Tim Ferriss first wrote his book, he wasn't sure what the title should be. And he didn't have a big audience, so he couldn't test it out. So what he did was he purchased $100 worth of Google AdWords to test out the different titles and look to see what got the most clicks. And what he found was that the four-hour work week was the clear winner. And some of the other options, which I list in the book, are horrendous. And so in retrospect, it seems like obvious, but he didn't know that until he had that test audience. Another great example is sell first and build later. That's another strategy I talk about in this book, which is that you'll find in many cases that people who are really good, I'll just give you a good example, which is Nick Swinworm. I don't know how many people in the audience have heard that name. Nick Swinworm in the very beginning of the 21st century was looking to buy shoes and he wanted a particular type of shoe and he couldn't find it. He spent hours at the mall. He was getting frustrated and he he thought to himself, wow, there's got to be a better way to buy shoes. But he didn't have money to build himself a giant warehouse of shoes. He didn't have any investors. So what he did was, is he went to his local shoe store and he said, hey, 
let me take photos of your shoes. I'm going to put them online. If anybody buys them, I'm going to come into your store. I'm going to buy these shoes. Can I take the photos? And they said, yes. Nick Swinworm is the co-founder of Zappos. <laughs> okay. And so it's a great example of how he did not find the backing or the money and he buy the warehouse. You don't need to do that. What you need to do is you need to put the sales page up, see what the reaction is. Again, go to a small component of your audience, see if it's working. And among those who are buying it, talk to them and figure out what was the barrier? What was the concern? What led you to, to not buy this? And obviously that takes time, but a successful business takes time to build and that's okay. And the key is to consistently be learning. And unless you're learning, you're really not moving forward. I mean, I think that we've been conditioned to assume that overnight success is something that we should be aiming for. And if we don't get that overnight success, that we're doing something wrong. And I just feel like that's a fallacy. And unfortunately, it's one that is promoted in the media all the time. And I think we would just be better to just embrace the fact that anything worth doing takes time. Yeah, absolutely. Anything worth doing definitely takes time. And I want to just go back to something that you said before, is that we'd kind of talked about, you know, first, you know, creating a big vision around something like a really big intention and one that is a lot bolder than the rest of the market. That's what I'm saying. You didn't necessarily, I don't know if you would agree with that or not, but that's what my approach would be. Uh-huh. And then the curiosity around that and just like, what would it take to do that? So instead of just like throwing up, oh, well, I don't have fun. I don't have this. I don't have his, that, that example with the Zappos in the shoes is like, he just went and made it happen. And just like, well, maybe I could do this. Right. So he just, put it out there, right? And he's not raking in a lot of money. He's paying retail in those shoes at first. So he's just doing whatever he needs to, to be able to get it up to get that business going. And then you were mentioning these tools to decode and to actually break it down to the components to understand what is going to make it work and what will make it work based on the data from that you've gathered from analyzing other successful ventures and other yep. successful products. Exactly right. Art, yeah. food. To that point, you know, what I would argue is that one of the things I love about, you know, going back to the Barack Obama story of looking at different fields is, again, it gives you license to just, hey, if you enjoy watching Japanese films on the weekends or you enjoy watching Keeping Up with the Kardashians, regardless of what you enjoy, there's value in your guilty pleasure as long as you're applying this curiosity mindset and continuously asking yourself, why is this working and what can I learn from this and how do I apply this to my next project? Ooh, I love that. I think that's a great place for us to end, Ron. Where can people find you if they want to? Well, first of all, I recommend everyone listening to this to buy Decoding Greatness. It's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. Where can they find the book and how can they get in touch with you if they'd like? The best place to go to learn more about the book is to go to decodinggreatnessbook.com. And the reason I mentioned that website is because if you purchase the book anywhere at your favorite bookstore, send us the receipt and we will send you a free course on how to reverse engineer in your field. And it's completely free. If you're interested in learning more about me, the place to go is ignite80.com. And the reason that's my company's website. And the reason it's called Ignite80 is because over 80% of employees are not fully engaged at work. And so our mission at Ignite80 is to teach leaders science-based principles for creating happy, focused, and creative workforces. Ooh, those sound like fantastic resources. I'm going to definitely check them out. And everyone listening, go check out those resources, learn more about Ron's work. Again, Ron Friedman, thank you so much for coming on the show and 
for sharing more about your new book, Decoding Greatness. And it's really been a pleasure. Yeah, same here. Thanks for having me.